y'all. I'm Adrian, and this is part two of our conversation with Danny McLean, where she is giving us the sibling interview. If you didn't hear the first part, you probably should uh, go back and listen to that first. It's one big conversation, and we're just sharing it in two parts because it lasted for quite a while. <laughs> All right. Oh, and another reminder, we have amazing merch for you. Um, I drew a picture of unicorns running away from an exploding planet. So you want to check it out. Patreon.com slash into the world show. So here's some more Danny with Autumn and I. So it's funny, Adrian, you are one of the first people who I met who really like emphasized your identity as being biracial because when I, where I grew up, mixed people were black. Like that was just kind of how I, what was going on in the nineties in Cincinnati, in like rural Cincinnati where I was from. And so you were one of the first people I met who pushed back and said, I'm not black. Um, my mom is white and I don't reject her identity and my own identity. Can you guys talk about kind of your own racial identity formation and what it's meant um, in your personal lives and in your movement work to be biracial or black biracial or however you identify? Yeah, it's, well, it's so interesting to hear that now to be like, oh yeah, that's, that's totally where I was at 17 years old. You know, I was like, yeah, this is where I am. I was very solid. And I think that's because our parents really raised us with race on a, like a back burner or decentered. Like it wasn't like absent, but it just wasn't how they were defining us. And we were around a lot of other kids who also had parents from multiple lineages. And it was like a thing, you know, like everyone had these, these backgrounds where it was like, you're black and Japanese or black and German or something is mostly black and something else. Um, and now in my forties, I actually have gone through many cycles with this. Like I remember being ashamed of it as I got politicized in college, you know, after, probably after I had talked to you about that, like as I got politicized, it was like, oh no, like you are black. Like one drop is black. That is, you you know, you're not going to have a white experience. You're only going to have a black experience and so on. But I look back now with such gratitude that our parents also made the move that they made because it felt like, and I think this is something that a lot of multiracial kids know, it felt like we were given an experience of like the construct of race is a lie. You know, it is a construct. It's not actually a real thing. There are the experiences of oppression that are tied to race and those are real and we're going to have to contend with them. But fundamentally, you are a human being having a human experience and you have multiple lineages in that experience. And even people who are black actually have multiple lineages inside their black experience, multiple tribal lineages, multiple experiences within that. Um, but it doesn't, it, it's, it's, it gave me this sense of like, oh, when people say your skin color makes you fundamentally different in some way that every person of that skin color experiences, we grew up out, outside of that lie. And it was like, first we get to just be ourselves and who are we? And I remember mom, you know, I remember one of the answers, people would be like, what are you? And I remember one of my first answers was like, what do you need me to be? Mm-hmm. And even my child self, I had some understanding that a lot of the categories that we end up living into are for other people are for how can I categorize you so that I can reduce you and control you or put you where I want you to be or recognize whether I'm superior to you or not. Like so many of the questions are, are that. Um, and like in our family, we have white family and black family and on both sides, all the things happened, which feels important to me too. Mm-hmm. It's like everyone had teenage pregnancies and pregnancies out of wedlock. Everyone was using drugs and had, there were addiction problems. There was college dropouts. There were college breakthroughs. There were successes. Um, there was economic hardship. There was like every single thing that, that people were like, oh, this is because you're this or because you're that. It all happened. Trouble with the law. People went to jail. Like, you know, <laughs> all of it was happening on both sides of our families, eating disorders, trauma, petty fights, and the only difference was that on one side of our family, the white side, they were told they were superior to all those things. And so when those things were happening, I was like, how do we hide them? Mm-hmm. We don't acknowledge that that's happening. We don't talk about that. It's gossip. It's behind the scenes. And on the other side of the family, it was like, this is what's to be expected of you. This and it's like, life. how do we, this is real life. This is, this is what black, this is what the black experience is. And you should just expect that. And so it was like, how do I transcend this? You know? So mm-hmm. the narrative arc of life 
was, am I falling from some promised white grace or am I transcending like the black experience? Like, what is it? And inside of it, it's like, you're having a human experience that is really deeply shaped by race. And, and it's going to be shaped by all these other things. Intersectionality was mind blowing for me later when we came across that. Um, but, but being biracial and multiracial, I also think, you know, it's not that magical answer that people thought it was, you know, I think when we were coming up with people like, yeah, this is going to be the way, like, we're just going to, everyone will just we'll be just in multiracial, interracial relationships. Exactly. I think <clears throat> there was that. And it's like, no, there's nothing you do that's going to take away the trauma that needs to be dealt with and accounted for on all sides. And, and I wouldn't wish the delusion of supremacy on my worst enemy. And since they already have that delusion, um, you know, I'm just like, I hope you heal from that delusion. Um, but I also wouldn't wish for black people the idea of a monolithic blackness that they have to like check off these boxes. And I think the more people can lean into the, the vibrance, the complexity of all these identities, the better off they are. But yeah, I feel like I'm in a continuous journey with that, that aspect of my identity where I know my blackness, I've experienced my blackness. And I also know that being multiracial gives you this other experience. And Danny, we were laughing about this, but I feel like it's something I want to throw in here too, is in movement space, particularly the people I've seen go the hardest about how blackness needs to be held as this very tightly contained and controlled thing are almost all mixed people, light-skinned people, people in multiracial relationships, or people who grew up going to white schools. Mm -hmm. It's people who don't feel confident necessarily Mm. in their blackness and so there ends up being this like policing, policing of the overdoing of it, yeah. right? Where when I meet folks who are like, yeah, I'm black. <laughs> that was never a question. It's not a question now. You know, let, what's good? Let's move. Let's organize. Let's build. And so it's something I keep, you know, I hope to continue learning about. Oh. I love hearing your experience of this, Adrienne. Um yeah, at some there was a point where I feel like I started answering that question, the que- the what are you question. I'd be like, I'm mom, white, dad, black. <laughs> exactly. I love that because there is like a gendered piece to it too, right? It's like, oh, yeah, okay, you're mixed, exactly. but is your mom black or white? Yeah, exactly. And then there are all these, mom, like, what does that, that mean? Matter. Let me exactly. just give, let me find a phrase that gives you all uh, the information that you're clearly seeking. Mm-hmm. Um, in many ways, I think... Adrian, you and I have had a pretty similar arc of, I don't want to say the word evolution, but more like continually evolving in our understanding of um, who we are and also how like the people that we are intersects with these categories that are the current categories. Yeah. And, you know, as a as an amateur historian, I think I also just stay in the place of like this is just what it is right now. Like you know, we it, we invest so much meaning into the current reality and yes. to to the detriment of like remembering that there are just other realities. There have always been other realities. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot with like Aikido practice because I just started practicing Aikido, which is you know. A, so cool. a Japanese martial art form. Mm-hmm. And of course, questions around like cultural appropriation arise in um, in taking on such a practice. And then I have to just keep regrounding myself in the reality that like these practices were developed at a point in time in which the that concern, like the framing of cultural appropriation, like was not a thought, you know? Yeah. And it's, you know, the same for so many of our, you know, greatest spiritual practices. Um, the idea that we need to be concerned about appropriation and ownership is contemporary. Mm-hmm. Um, which is not to say that it's not important, but just to say that it's contemporary, you know? And yeah. And so I think about like my arc, I just, I have so many memories of mom, you know, like marching into schools and just being like, you white woman teacher, 
<laughs> yeah. I'm standing face to face with you as another white woman telling you that you do not get to tell my daughter how to identify and you don't get to tell her anything about her racial identity. You don't get to talk to her about that. It's not your job. And then the conversations that were happening between us in private were these really vulnerable, like surprisingly vulnerable moments when you think about it. Yeah. Where our parents were like, we don't know what to tell you about like what you are or who you are because you're having a fundamentally different racial experience than what we had. Yeah. So it's not our job to tell you that. It's your job to figure it out. And it's, it's only yours. Um, and I do think that <clears throat> that the freedom of being given, just being given permission by my parental authorities to to self-define was such an important part of my, like, who I am as a person and who I've become. It's made it so much easier to also, like, lean into the other parts of my identity that may be considered, like, transgressive to yes. mainstream society. You know, it's like leaning into being queer. I mean, it still – it took me a while to finally, like, come out to the world, um, which was funny because when I finally did come out to the world, of course, everyone was like, duh. Yeah, like <laughs> not no one is confused or surprised. Um, um, yeah, it's just it's like I think I feel and have always felt a real sense of boundary around around my right to self-define, um, which has left me then in the in the glad place of being able to to shift and change like how I name myself over time. You know, there was a period of time in my self-development where I really felt politically like it was important for me to identify as both a white woman and as a black woman hmm. because of my light-skinnedness and the proximity to whiteness that I held. Now I've really – I don't feel that anymore. Um. But I don't regret that I went through that phase because I think it helps shape so much of my understanding about like my capacity to work with and help support the healing of the cultural trauma of whiteness, right? Like letting mm -hmm. myself be as close into it as I was and feel the trauma of it mm -hmm. was necessary both for my political development, for my ideological development. And for my spiritual development, because then there came a point where I was like, ah, oh, I understand that for my healing, I actually need to um, not like sacrifice myself on this altar, right? For my healing, I actually need to get myself to safety and not feel like I have to be proxim as proximal to whiteness as absolutely possible for the sake of the movement, you know? And, um, and, and, and it, you know, it was around the time that I was like having those understandings that I discovered like black feminist praxis, black feminist theory, mm -hmm. um, that I started really grounding myself in like black feminism as like a body of, of not just theoretical, but spiritual work that then reshaped how I do what I do. Um, and so for me, all of that, like the whole the whole arc of it from the way our parents helped us orient to it to now has set me up for being able to experience my blackness as a space of healing, not as a space of not as like a site of trauma. Um, because there's such profound magic in our culture. Like, truly, I do think Black people are magical, you know. Mm. I think that we are magical. Um, but I think that I had to go really close to – I think I had to, like – it's like, you know, a planet <laughs> making wow. an arc, right? Like, I think I had to go out to those outer edges, like the outer zone of where it's really cold and dark, um, you know, which is that that cultural void, where whiteness is. I had to go out there in order to like come back around and be like, oh, 
this is actually beautiful. Like this is this, this thing that, you know, that our society tells us is like only a site of oppression and trauma is actually like the most beautiful thing that's happened like in the last 400 years on this land. So, (laughs) well, and you know, I'm so glad you, I'm really glad you bring it in that way that, because I think that's true of so many aspects of identity that, we're given identity and and like sometimes we claim it, you know, we're like, yes, I'm this, you know, I, I know I've seen that trend happen where people start to inter- introduce themselves with like, here's the labels that you can mm-hmm. use to attend to me. I'm this sexual, I'm this, this, I'm this, that, that, whatever. And it's like going through all that. But it's like, what does that identity actually mean for you? And for me, the places I want to claim are those places that I feel oh, I see them beauty. I see this as a place of beauty. And what I understand is so many of those places like queerness are given to us for the sake of oppression. Like it starts out like, oh, we want to oppress you because you're different from the other, different from the norm in this way. Um, And then that's that reclamation practice where it's like, actually, this is what blackness is. And this is, this is all the incredible, um, power that sits into it, you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and this is what queerness is and so on and so forth. And, you know, I keep thinking about this. I've been having this conversation with other people in black liberation work about what, what it actually means to do black liberation. Like what are we actually trying to move towards ultimately? Yeah. And really like, what does it look like in practice or as a lived experience? And I have these, I was like writing this note down that it was like, Ultimately, liberation means you're able to act in the way you feel compelled to act and to love yourself without hesitation, to love who you want to love. It doesn't mean you're checking off a particular set of experiences so much as that you're able to understand the patterns of oppression that have shaped our collective conditions. And then you can work to end that oppression. But the path to liberation is always the return to the full potential of your humanity. And Mm -hmm. the rest is culture, right? Is figuring out like which aspects of the culture speak to you. I know tons of black people are like, I don't like rap music (laughs) or whatever it is. It's like, yes. And for some people, that cultural force has been a liberating force or whatever it is, right? So anyway, all that to say, I feel like, I feel like one of the things that has become more important to me about my racial identity has been to not lie or contort the story to make it more comfortable for other people. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I'm like, I can't make white people more comfortable with it. I can't make black people more comfortable with it. And I won't make other multiracial people more comfortable with it. That's not the goal of telling my story, (laughs) of telling our story. The goal is our story did happen. It exists. Our parents did fall in love with each other and they raised us in this particular way. And that's the human experience we're having. (laughs) Right. And, and so because it is being had, it is a legitimate experience that needs to be contended with. And I keep thinking about that as like, there's so many legitimate experiences that we try to reduce out of existence. And I'm like, I don't want to be reduced out of existence. I don't want to be, you know, like those teachers were trying to do pushed into a box that negated half of my life. Like I'm not interested in, in any negation of any aspect of myself at this point. And, um, and, and inside of that, it's interesting because most of the time if people ask me, I say I'm black and queer and that, encompasses all of it. You know, mm-hmm. I'm like yeah. it feels like a very black experience to have multiracial people as a part of our large number, right? Is I know just so many, so many, so many black people who are mixed with all kinds of things. Yeah. And there's so many stories of survival and love inside of all of that, as well as stories of harm. Like it's all there. Mm. Yeah. So what, Adrian? Mm-hmm. Do you need for people to know about autumn? Oh my god! Um, <laughs> there's so many things that people need to know about this sibling of mine. Um, one is I, I think of autumn as like the protagonist of a Shakespearean play. Like you are a Shakespearean <laughs> heroine, and I don't think people know this about autumn. Is that like? But is at- it a tragedy or a <laughs> <laughs> it is both. <laughs> Um, you know, it's truly, uh, like the scale at which your life happens is so bombastic. It's so massive. And I don't think people, I, you know, I think when people meet you, the experience they're having is like, here is the most competent person I've ever met. 
and she's just going to boss everything out. And it's like, that's true. And also when she leaves you, she is going into whatever the, like the biggest scale of life could be. Like, it's like the most kids and the most things happen, the most changes. And like, it's just big. Right. Um, and so I think people should know that. And I also think something that it took me a while to learn is that you have an incredible capacity to be inside of of what feels to me like chaotic in, environments and and be calm and peaceful and having the best time you know like so your familial life like i love visiting then i, I will come and i'm like there for a week like and then i leave and i'm like Wow. How, I don't know how all that is something that just goes on all the time and y'all are all just riding it out and having a blast, but you're clearly are like everyone is laughing and fighting and laughing and joyful and cooking and it's all happening. But like, I would come to visit you. I regularly would come to visit Autumn throughout our lives and I'll land and I'm like, all right, it's going to be you and me. We're going to sit down and like have some wine or something and talk for a few hours. <laughs> and I'll get there and Autumn's like, hey, like my three best friends are going to be camping in the backyard and like the kids actually aren't going to be here. They're going to be here like with us. And oh, I got a dog. And like, and so, you know, and still inside of that, if I can follow you around inside the cast, like we'll have an amazingly, like you're able to operate at a very deep level inside of that life. But it is so many things happening concurrently, like at all times. And then you'll tell me you're adding something, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, I'll be like, okay, that's definitely like full. Life is full. And then you're like, I'm taking an Aikido class. I'm like, pitch, when? <laughs> like, where? How? You know, how is that going to happen? Um, I also think folks should know that you studied Greek and and like, not just like in a lighthearted way, but like you deeply studied Greek and it it's not possible like... to study Greek in a lighthearted way. <laughs> um, let's see. I'm trying to think if there's anything else people should know. Autumn really loves to sleep. Um, and I don't know that she'll ever get as much sleep as she deserves in this life. Mm -mm. It's one of the prayers, like when I say prayers for you, which is daily. It's one of the main prayers I have for you is just let Autumn sleep, like mm -hmm. let her sleep in, let her go to bed early, let her, you know, fall asleep mid sentence, like just let her sleep. <laughs> like this is someone who needs to sleep and loves to sleep because of that scale at which you're living your life. Um, so those are some, you know, I think people do know that you're a brilliant writer. Um, cause the first thing on my list when I was like jotting it down, I was like brilliant novelist. And I was like, Oh, you know, Everyone will know that eventually, um, Someday. but I think they do know you're a brilliant writer already. It's just like, wait till y'all see how the novel actually feels. So those are some things. Aww. What a sweet prayer for someone that they get enough rest. Oh, that's my prayer. That's, that's my prayer for you too, Charlie. Yeah, <laughs> like, I'm like, these are my prayers for my moms in my life as I'm just like, Lord, I don't understand how they are continuing, but please just give them a nap. Um, mm. Yeah. Mm. But you know that's me. I'm like when it comes to babies, I'm just like wow. And so then the baby's just there all the time. <laughs> Somehow, <laughs> no one amazing. comes and takes the baby away. <laughs> no. <laughs> and then just whatever they want to talk about, that's your subject. Oh, awesome. And you know, I'm a great auntie. Yeah, you are. You are. Um, Autumn. <laughs> I think people. So many people think they know. All there is to know about Adrian, right? But they don't. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, I'm like, where do I? Where? Where? What is the boundary here? Um, <laughs> god, like, Adrian, I love you so right much, um, and thank you for for naming the way that you see me in my chaotic life. Um, I think. Okay, so one thing is, I think that people know that you're funny, but I don't mm -hmm. think that, I don't think, I think that people also probably perceive you as e much more serious than you actually are. Exactly. Um, and that's one of the things that I love about being your sister, because I know how absolutely ridiculously, absurdly silly you actually are in real life. And like one of the things that probably most people don't know is that um, 
like there's a joke within my family about how Adrian is actually the youngest because she's the closest to a child <laughs> in our family. <laughs> Like, that's how my kids relate to Adrian. Like, one of the things that makes Adrian Auntie Extraordinaire is that when she arrives, she's like, comes in happy fun style, you know, happy Always. style clothes, happy yeah. style everything, and is like, let's binge Jurassic Park Camp Cretaceous. I will watch this with you all day and be like, just as into it as you are. Oh my God, Ryan the Last Dragon. Oh my God, this cartoon. Oh my yes. God, that cartoon. Like, you just, you have this unique capacity to enter. A like truly, um, like childlike wonder when you're with children, but also you're just in childlike wonder, like where wherever you are, you know. Um, and like I remember when we were in when we were traveling in Northern Ireland together, <laughs> and we went to, um, the giant the giant steps. I don't remember what that place is called, but I remember yes. we get we get out of the vehicle and there's like. Isn't it um, Finn the Giant or something? It's I don't remember. It's yeah. some some yeah. giant left some things, and then we went to visit them <laughs> on <laughs> the water. It's like on the this, coast. On the coast. Yeah. yeah, our listeners will know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I just can't remember it right now. But we get out of the car, and there is like a giant group of birds murmuring, and you get out of the car, and you're like. <laughs> Like you just start laughing like a crazy person and then you're filming it because you're just so delighted by how big of a group of birds are like murmuring. It's like, like thousands of birds. Like though so I think people understand that you that you experience wonder but I don't think you know most people don't get to directly experience what it's like when you enter a state of wonder. Um but then also you are so fucking hilarious and like so witty, so quick, so like, I mean, I, we maybe have mentioned this on the show before, but like I literally spent a good 30% of my childhood spitting shit out of my mouth because I was laughing so hard at jokes that you make. And you still are able to do that to me, you know, like mm -hmm. you make me laugh harder than like anybody in my life. Um, the other thing that I think people um, don't necessarily know about you that I'm really excited to share is that you um, are really good at games and you win almost Everything. all the time. And it's like upsetting, <laughs> especially because you go into this whole other like version of yourself where you get like <laughs> smug. Uh -huh. But like you're acting like it's not a big deal that you're just deal. like winning just win hand after hand after hand after hand after hand after hand after hand. <laughs> like you just like can't stop winning. And then you'll just like make this cute smile and be like, I'm a Virgo. What can I say? You know, <laughs> it's like, but it's not even your Virgo nature. It's like your genius nature. It's like you. It's just that one game. It's not. It's not, though. I've experienced this with almost all games that I've played with you. You have a tendency <laughs> to win. Um, and What's that game called? Um, well, I mean, I've experienced it with spades. I've experienced it with Mario. I've experienced it with Scrabble. I think Melinda is like maybe the only person I know who's beat you at Scrabble. One time. Yeah. <laughs> One time. <laughs> exactly. Um, so. Oh, nerds. Nerds. Oh my God. Nerds. You're so good at nerds. Oh, but like most card games, like you're really, yeah. really, really, really skilled at card games. Um, and then I guess the last thing I'll say is like, you know, you are just like a deeply tender and loyal and loving person and like you feel things on such a deep level. And I think like in our social media culture, it's easy to like see that and think that some level of it is performance, right? Mm. Um, but in your case, it's not performance. It's like you just literally are feeling like your your heart is so open, you know. Mm -hmm. And of course, that can be it's like a burden that you carry too to like have your heart be so open. Like I know that in our relationship, it's been this pretty deep thing where like if I'm experiencing pain, like you are feeling my pain, you know, and like we end up having to do a lot of work around like how do we differentiate 
so that you're not so deep in the pain with me that you're not able to like have perspective on it. Right. But it's like, but that's all we need to get out of this situation. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, we need to get to safety. It's like, I, I need that and (laughs) you need to help me. No. Um, but, but, but I feel like that's been like the beautiful, like growth of our relationship also is like you figuring that out about yourself and me figuring that out about you. And like, knowing that like you are my older sister and and of course there's things I expect of you because you're my older sister and you're also like a fully human person with needs of your own mm. um and part of that has to do with like your deep tenderness you know um so i've i've learned over the years not to like just not to take it for granted you know mm. and um not to be so like hard on you because I'm learning to see like how tender and sweet and soft you actually are, you know? I see. Thank you, sister. Beautiful. So I have loved this series. I mean, I love this podcast in general, but this series in particular has just been really sweet um, for me. And I think, probably for a lot of folks out there listening. And so I wonder from your vantage point, because you've, you've led these conversations with so many siblings, what are you learning so far? Um, are there any themes or insights or kind of, you know, and I think I'm particularly interested in the, both the, the title of your podcast, right? How to survive the end of the world um, and moments that you've dug, especially you, Autumn, when you've dug more specifically into like no, seriously, like, how are we going to survive the end of the world like, from a practical perspective here, like, for real? Um, is there anything that you're learning about family that feels especially relevant to our preparation for and navigation of apocalypse or um, massive global change? One of the things that I remember we talked about often um, in the apocalypse mini series that happened in 2020 is like the importance of like knowing your surroundings, like being really familiar with your environment and also knowing your people, like knowing who your people are and actually mapping a lot of that out. And I think for many people, when they're thinking about what do I actually need in order to survive in a disaster or an apocalyptic moment or an end of the world kind of scenario or just a a moment of massive change, as you just named Danny. I think one of the things that's hardest for people to imagine or understand or like let in is like who my people are, like who are the people Mm -hmm. I would actually turn to, who are the people I can depend on and how will I know, you know, how do I know who they are? And for me, where that intersects with the, the sibling miniseries is there, there is an element of that preparation, knowing, the knowing who your people are, that's about actively making choices, right? Like choosing the people that you want to move through the most stressing or distressing moments of your life with and intentionally building relationships with people that you know, like your goal is to be able to hold each other through something. And one of the things that has been so beautiful in the sibling mini series is witnessing story after story after story of people who were born into the same family, did not have to choose each other, but chose each other anyway. And like, there's, there's a unique, um, I think in every single conversation we witness this, there's this unique power that people sit in. And I don't mean like power in the sense of like power over, but just like power in the expansive sense of um, being grounded and clear, (laughs) you know, there's a unique power that they all sit in because they, because they've chosen each other in the world in addition to being born into the same family. Mm-hmm. And that's such a different journey than just being born into the same family and then staying in relationship just because. Um, mm. The fact that all of our siblings that we've interviewed are not just able to see each other as family, but also see each other as like partners in this like 
unique experiment of trying to survive under oppressive conditions. I I think there's so much to learn. Like there was a point, and, and I have to say, I have to really give credit to Adrian for this whole mini series. This was Adrian's vision from the beginning. And I think this is something that you wanted to do probably like from a pretty early point in like us creating the podcast, you know? Yeah. And I don't know why this was the time, but this like kind of felt like the right time. Yeah. And and I was just like, go with it, you know? And almost all the guests are guests that like Adrienne specifically reached out to and booked. There were a few of the guests were folks that I brought in, but most of the like most of the arc was really shaped by Adrienne's vision for who we needed to be talking to and in what order. And <clears throat> and I just have to really commend you for that because there came a point this year where I realized we have created an archive of our movement. Just if you think about the extraordinary span in generations that are represented in this miniseries and also parts of our social justice movement, where it's it represents like like at least half a century of organizing work. That's right. <laughs> right? Or That's more, right. actually, just in who our guests are and where all they come from in the world and in the work. And, you know, from abolition to environmental justice, from Alabama to Puerto Rico, you know, it's like it is such an expansive body of work that we've now co-created all together that I, I don't even know that we really truly understand the value of what what has happened over this last year. Um, but I just, I want to commend Adrian for that because this, this was really your vision. Thank you, sister. Thank you for saying yes to it. You know, I feel like you and Zach were like, okay, yeah, let's sure. try it. And um, it, I think for me, it's been a profound experience because you know, our, our experience of being siblings in movement has felt like such a nourishing thing to me um, that I'm like, oh, it helps so much to know that there's someone else who comes from this experience that we share and also feels compelled to change the world in this way. You know, like it's mm-hmm. like, yes, right? We, we understand why from a sim- similar root system. But I also think Alexis Pauline Gums wrote this essay a few years ago called Sistering as a Verb. Mm. And it really like... I think about it all the time. I think she's, I think maybe in it quoting Aisha Shahida Simmons, I'd have to go back and like make all the connections in my brain. I want to source it. But I think about the, every future that I can imagine is one in which people really can look at each other as like brother and sister and mean it. Like, it's like, I really want to take care of you and be in community with you. And in my life, I was gifted with two blood sisters. And then I have chosen additional sisters, right? right? Danny, you're one of my sisters. Janine is my sister. Jody is my sister. I have, we goddess sisters, you know, like I have gathered and gathered because it's to me one of the most sacred forms of relationship where you're saying we are in, in a peer relationship, really, you know, we're within a few years of each other. We share these experiences. We share, if, if there is trauma in our family, we, we probably share it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> if there was privilege in our family, we probably share it. And so balancing between healing and and relinquishing, you know, inju- unjust power and all of that, it's shared. You had to figure it out together. And, and then the tenderness that a sibling can hold you through, there are just moments in your life where you need someone who really knows you all the way back to the root system to look at you and say, no we're not settling for this and we're going to get out of here right now. Yes, no, girl. <laughs> we are not going to let these people hurt us like this anymore or we're not staying in this dumb job or whatever it is, right? Like we recognize like these systems of the world, they're not going to get my sister, right? Yeah. And I feel like when we listened to all these interviews and it just felt like each of the siblings had those moments <laughs> too where they were just like, remember this, you know, remember that moment and we had drifted, but then we claimed each other. We found each other. You know, I think about Angela going to find Fanya Davis, you know, being like, where are you? I, know, <laughs> I love that get story. Amazing. Right? I'm like, the sister does that, you know, yes. the sibling does that. Yeah. Right. And yeah. just like thinking about how Makani protected baby Robin oh. and, you know, like, oh. I'm like, how important is that protection in shaping who Robin Kelly is oh. and the vision that he holds for yes. the world. Right. Like, we need those people to just have us. And so, you know, 
however familial, you know, when I think of family and I think movement is always trying to be like, we're like family. Um, but I think family needs to be a much more intentional act. And I hope that in the process of this whole podcast, that's one of my goals is to make the work of family more um, transparent to people. That's like family is actually not just defaulting into the patterns that you've always been in. I think pattern, I think the family is the front line of figuring out how we actually do everything differently. And I know that the relationship that you and I, Autumn, have and and the relationship we have with our sister is that has been like the first place where I was like, I can show up and say, I want our relationship to be deeper and more intentional and more intimate. I need you guys to know that I'm really struggling with how I see my body. I need someone to tell that to who I know loves my body unconditionally. I need to be intentional like, why do we, you know, cause we, I, and I want to say this, we, you know, there were years in our family where every time we would get together for the holidays or whatever, it would de- it would fall apart. You know, we would get together and it would just be like countdown to fall apart. Explosion. Explosion. <clears throat> and then we made a decision together, you know, as a family, starting with the siblings, it's like, when we get together, we're going to go and sit down and actually find out how we all are. And what we're coming into this with, because the explosions are not actually about us. It's about what we don't know that's mm-hmm. happening in all of our lives. And, and not feeling visible. Not feeling visible, not feeling like our needs could even be met. And it's like that Lean on Me song, you know, no one can meet those of your needs, which you don't let show. Mm-hmm. And I feel like in mm. my sibling relationships was the first place where I was like, I'm going to let these needs show. Yeah. And then in our family, we let these needs show. And now we meet every week. We are on the phone with each other. I can't believe we weren't doing this our whole lives. I know, so it's weird. This is one of my gratitudes for what this pandemic has yielded for us is just these really intense experiences of family. Um, and I think <clears throat> maybe the last thing I'll say on this is I think moving forward into the world, whether it's chosen family or blood family, I think that the way we're going to navigate the fall of capitalism, the fall of patriarchy, the fall of white supremacy, the fall of these systems is that we're going to have family, right? Family that can expand into tribe, family that can expand into something like community that can care for each other and feels responsible for each other, right? Like that's how we're going to get there. So I think it's, I think it really, to me, it's like, figure it out, figure out who your family is, figure out who the people are that you're, you can have these kind of conversations with. And I hope that other siblings listening to this series sit down and have conver- you know ask yourselves these questions yeah have the conversations amongst yourselves because almost all of the siblings that we spoke to to a pair yes. told us at the beginning of the interview we've never had this conversation before ever yeah i'm like wow this is history you know i already told autumn i was like i want to make this a book or something because i'm still learning <laughs> that a podcast already is a thing right. i'm like wait we already made this um we may not have to turn it into something else but <laughs> i also have like it just feels like such a beautiful part of of movement history and u.s history and world history mm-hmm. to have this aspect of biographical biographical material so yeah. i'm i'm really geeked out that it worked out oh it's such a gift Thank you all for your brilliance. Thank you, Challenge. Thank you, Danny. There's no one we could have trusted more to like oh. hold this part of the conversation with us. Thank you for being our sister. I know. It's my pleasure. Like sister Danny, <laughs> we need you now. It's my pleasure. Um, so we're going to finish up uh, this thing and we want to talk about top culture. <laughs> and it's like, a uh, very important part of any conversation. But with both of you, you y'all are two of the people that I share culture with <laughs> the most. So I'm also geeked out about this, tri- you know, triangle of culture moment. Um, what is the culture that is helping you move through this period of history? I'll be quick because I don't have anything that's like accessible to other people. Um, <laughs> I, I would say my top culture currently is Siobhan. Um, Siobhan is writing, like is starting to write a lot of her own stories. 
Um, and some of them are short stories. Some of them are like envisioned as novel length stories. Like she has multiple Google Docs with stories that she's writing that have multiple chapters in them. Right now she's working on a piece of fan fiction that's based on the Red Queen book series. Oh my mm-hmm. God. Um, and what's really cool is to watch her processing herself in her mm-hmm. fiction writing. So like almost every character, almost every protagonist of every story that she writes is like a young, a, a young teenage girl who has the power to hypnotize people oh. and make people do things with her mind. Come on, Gemini sis. And then like what she's navigating is people being afraid of her and threatened by her and trying to control her. So she has to control them first. And it's just like (laughs) wild. (laughs) And there's always a mom character who's like the one person who really accepts her, but also is like, she's, she's like also still trying to take over her mom's mind. And so it's like a whole (laughs) thing. (laughs) But I just had, she, she shares it all with me. And, but like literally she'll come home from school every day and immediately like the, one of the first questions she'll ask is like, how soon can I pull out my computer so I can keep working on my story, mom? It's like, she is so serious about her writing right now. And it is just really cool to see that show up in a kid at such a young age. And, and I mean, one of the things I've always loved about Siobhan is like, she processes everything in her world through creativity and she always has like she creates she's always just created songs to describe whatever is happening in our lives um I wonder have I told this dead baby story on the (laughs) podcast before you might have told it way back but I don't think it would I think it's worth retelling because it's Mm -hmm. just one of the best thing that happened in the process of losing my baby um which was such a horrible horrible thing but yeah um, Marie or Siobhan was, was probably like 2014. That was 2014. So let's see. That was seven, seven years, years ago. ago. And She's so four? Siobhan would have been like four. Wow. And this was like immediate wake of losing the baby. I had gotten back from the hospital. This was probably like the night that I got back from the hospital or maybe the next night. I'm like totally in grief cloud fog, not able to really even interact with anyone in a normal way. And I'm standing, I'm just kind of standing in the dining room of my old house and just like standing there, not, not really with it. And Siobhan comes walking through the dining room, holding a small child keyboard in her hand, playing it, playing this keyboard in her hands and walks through the dining room singing, dead baby, dead baby, (laughs) and just walks through the kitchen and into the next room. (laughs) And it snapped me out of my fog momentarily. And I started laughing. (laughs) We all started laughing. And, you know, and then I went back into my fog and I remained in my fog for like months and months. But it was like something about this child. Like she's so – she's always been so magical and in touch with her environment and always has had this beautiful like – capacity to just like immediately translate whatever is happening into song, into dance, into a scene that she's acting out and now into fiction that she's writing. I just, I love that story. Like I love that. I have slightly different memories of it, but I also love that piece of it. But one of the things I love is that I remember so many times Siobhan having an experience with someone getting mad and going to the next room being like, I'm really angry at you. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, yes. I'm like that. Or like she'll, we'll get into an argument and then she'll like draw a comic of what happened (laughs) and then hand it to me. (laughs) Here's the monster. That's you. Um, Yeah. So my top culture. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, right now I'm I'm knee deep in Will Smith's autobiography, and I'm actually thoroughly enjoying it. Uh, really highly recommend it. I'm listening to it as an audio book, and I definitely think that's how you should all listen to it or experience it because it's just Will. It's like you're being with him. It's great. And I'm almost I finished the Red Queen series finally, um, all four books, and I'm reading the additional material of it. So, yeah, 
Well, so HBO has really been giving me what I need in terms of mm. just like rom-com series. I just love a good rom-com. And so I just binged Starstruck, um, which stars this comedian from New Zealand named Rose Matafeo. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce her last name, but she's just amazing. And it's just a cute little um, romantic comedy set in London and... She's just giving me everything I need. She's somebody who I watch her on the show and I'm like, she's a star. Like, I hope Ah. she makes it huge because Mm. she is just executing every single scene. She's so funny. She's so gorgeous. Like, Mm. so I'm just rooting for her. It's good. It's good. That's exciting. Stop ruining my cool moment with the window. When people see us together, it's like one of those, you know, weird animal friendship shows where you see a Labrador and a hedgehog with friends and everyone's like, oh, that's not right, that's weird, but okay, if it works for them, great. People don't think that. Obviously, you would say that you're the fucking Labrador. And then before Starstruck, I watched Love Life, also on HBO, which didn't quite, I mean, it was very good. Um, And it's William Jackson Harper from The Good Place, which I did not watch. Um, And Jessica Williams is really the standout on that show. Yeah. Um, the comedian she's amazing yeah yeah oh, she's i love her yeah it's like good her. it's good and it's got like all your black faves from like sitcoms and 90s movies um so it's got like aunt viv is in there blair underwood and kimberly elise like it's just <gasps> oh it's yeah good. Okay. it's really love good. life uh, love life, yeah. Love life, okay. love life love and Star Trek. Highly underneath. recommend. I know. He's only in one episode, but he does. Okay. Uh, once a heartthrob, always a heartthrob. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm just like, look. Um, very good. Thank you so much, Danny, for oh. coming and joining us and, and letting us be in this intimate space with you. Oh my gosh. I we love like you so much and everything that we you love do, you Danny. Deeply. I love you guys. Thank you for inviting me in. Thanks for listening to our show. We're on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the incomparable and delightful Zach Rosen. And we're transcribed by Jess Pinkham. And music for today's show comes from Tunde Alaniran and Mother Cyborg. And if you like this show, rate and review us wherever you listen to the podcast. And if you don't like it, you don't have to rate and review anything. <laughs> <laughs> I heard Glennon Doyle say that and I was like, mm, yeah. <laughs> you don't have to say anything if you don't like <laughs> I it. I was like, you don't have to say anything ever. All right. Bye. <laughs>